So as Joel told you, this is my first sermon. He also told me that the first 200 sermons you give will suck. So I've got 199 to go, and then I'll be good. So um, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his insignificance and lowly state until he has compared himself with the majesty of God. That's John Calvin. So let's pray real quick. My heart's about to burst. So, King Jesus, you are good. You are awesome. And you are holy. Lord, please be with us. Instill this into our lives today, the message that you have shown us through Isaiah 6. Please, God, humble us. Humble me. Lord, I'm petrified by your holiness. And I can't even wrap my mind around it. But Lord, please help us to understand it a little more today so we can understand you more fully. And we pray this in your name. Amen. In the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah died around 740 B.C. and it marked an end of a lengthy period of national prosperity in Israel. Up until this point, Isaiah had an unspoken commission but in these next few verses, God sees fit to renew Isaiah's commission to this kind of Israel that's just in the middle of change, in the middle of this transition, and to confirm Isaiah's faith. And what a glorious vision that is. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled with the tent filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. In these four verses, pastor and scholar John Piper says we could see seven glimpses of God here, seven different things. One, God is alive. Uzziah is dead. The king of Israel is gone. But Israel's God, the king of kings, is alive. God is authoritative. He sits at complete peace and complete sovereignty on his throne. God is omnipotent. That God's throne is higher than every other throne signifies God's superior power to exercise his authority. No opposing authority can nullify the decrees of God. What he purposes, he accomplishes. To be gripped by the omnipotence of God is either marvelous because he is for us or terrifying because he is against us. Indifference to his omnipotence simply means we haven't seen it for what it is. The sovereign authority of the living God is a refuge full of joy and power for those who keep his covenant. God is resplendent. Um, I mean, we see that. His holiness fills the temple. His robe filled the temple, high and exalted. God is revered. 
even magnificent creatures like the seraphs. Now these seraphs, like, these aren't like these little pretty angels that we see on these like little <laughs> postcards and stuff. These are huge, magnificent beasts with six wings. I mean, we see a couple times in scriptures where certain biblical characters are confronted with angels and their first reaction to an angel is fear. And the angel immediately goes, no, 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 don't worship me because <laughs> you don't know who I worship. God is glorious. The whole earth is full of his glory. And finally, the last thing we see is that God is holy. Now, what do I mean when I say God is holy? So I think a lot of times that word gets thrown around. You know, we hear that the Dalai Lama is holy. We hear that, you know, uh, it's a good band. Motley Crue is holy. You know, <laughs> hear all these different things. <clears throat> R.C. Sproul says, when we use the word holy to describe God, we face another problem. We often describe God by compiling a list of qualities or characteristics that we call attributes. We say that God is a spirit, that he knows everything, that he is loving, just, merciful, gracious, and so on. The tendency is to add the idea of the holy to this long list of attributes as one attribute among many. But when the word holy is applied to God, it does not signify one single attribute. On the contrary, God is called holy in a general sense. The word is used as a synonym for his deity. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is. It reminds us that his love is holy love. His justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. His knowledge is holy knowledge. And his spirit is holy spirit. John Frame also says, Holiness, then, is God's capacity and right to arouse our relevant awe and wonder. It is his uniqueness, his transcendence. It is his majesty. For the holy God is like a great king whom we dare not treat like other persons. Indeed, God's holiness impels us to worship in his presence. Sorry, I need Diet Coke. <clears throat> so we see from these two brilliant quotes that holy is used to describe God's magnificent character. This is a magnificent God who is above all holy and awesome. We see his separateness from sin, and we see that throughout Scripture, how much he hates sin. He detests sin. And when we are called to be part of the family of God, we are called to be holy like him. We are called to separate ourselves from sin. And of course, his imminent transcendence. I watched a video by Louis Giglio, and he talked about <clears throat> how big God is. He's like, all right, imagine that the earth is the size of a golf ball. He took this golf ball and he holds it up to this big screen that's about, you know, from the yellow part uh, where the guitar is. It's this big picture of the sun. It's like, this is the earth compared to the sun. And then the next screen, he's like, all right, now the next biggest star in our galaxy. It's like, if you take that golf ball and you put it at the foot of the Empire State Building, he's like, wait, 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 there's still more. The next biggest star is if you take that, that golf ball and you stack three Empire State Buildings on top of each other and then you put, 
the golf ball at the bottom. Oh wait, there's more, you know? Then you take that golf ball and you put it right next to two Golden Gate bridges. And then he's finally, the biggest star, you take that golf ball and you set it at the foot of Mount Everest. Now, if we are that small and our biggest star is that big, can you imagine how big God is? And yet we have the audacity to think we can tell him what to do. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Any sin is more or less heinous depending upon the honor and majesty of the one whom we have offended. Since God is of an infinite honor, infinite majesty, and infinite holiness, the slightest sin is of infinite consequence. The slightest sin is nothing less than cosmic treason when we realize against whom we have sinned. That was Jonathan Edwards. Now, if any of you have grown up in American public schools, you know that we read sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's Jonathan Edwards. When I first read that, I was like, oh my gosh, like, how ignorant of this guy, who does he think he is that he could tell me, you know, all these different things. But as I came to read the Bible for myself, like Joel said a few years ago, I started to see how ugly I was. That's kind of what Isaiah happened. Woe to me, I had cried, I am ruined. The Hebrew word for ruin there describes Isaiah was before this throne and before him he could see almost every sin that he had ever committed. He was undone. He was unravished. Can you imagine that? I think it's by God's grace sometimes that he doesn't let us see ourselves fully as we are. Because if we did, we would be on our knees asking him to obliterate us. We are all stained with our sin, our own depravity. I think it's funny. I take a bunch of ethics class at uh, University of Baltimore. And I think it's hilarious sometimes when these ethics teachers get up there and they think that evil doesn't exist. The audacity of people to deny the existence of evil is idiotic. And we should know that. All of us should know that. I mean, we just turn on the TV and we know it exists. We live in Baltimore. We know evil exists. These past two summers, I've been given, I was given the gracious opportunity to go do missions work in inner city Chicago and inner city Seattle. Um, in inner city Chicago, before we had got there, the director of the trip, he was, he's a, he works in the wild 100s, which is probably Chicago's most violent neighborhoods. He works as a, he works at the Agape Community Center, trying to preach the gospel to gangbangers, to get these kids out of these hoods and these streets and get them into the center and help them bring God into their life. One day he was 
he had walked to work, and there's a little boy beaten by by gangbangers with a two-by-four. He told me this story about how he ran and he picked up the boy and he carried him in his arms and he watched that little boy die in his arms. I can't imagine that. This past summer, I worked in Seattle. The first week I was there, we got to do an internship with the Department of Corrections. Our job was to minister to parole officers, to share the gospel with them. The, sex of, or the parole officer that I was teamed up with worked only with violent sex offenders. I met men who I would read their case file before meeting these perverts. And I would meet men who had raped their little four-year-old girl, who had sodomized their six-year-old boy. If that doesn't piss you off, there's something wrong with you. That should not happen. Evil exists. I need to tell you guys this. This is very clear to me from what Scripture has told me. This is not me saying it. This is what the Bible is about. This is what Scripture has told me. And I need need to tell you guys this. I'm going to pause midway through my sentence. And I'm going to finish that sentence later on. Are you guys ready? You're going to hell. Every single one of you are going to hell. I don't care about your religion. I don't care about what good works you have done. I don't care that you've had a hard life and therefore you think you deserve heaven. No. In fact, Scripture speaks, you all deserve hell. I deserve hell. Believe me, I deserve hell. We deserve God's holy wrath. When I first started studying the scriptures for myself, and I started studying the Old Testament, I was offended. I was absolutely offended. Not at me. I was offended at God. How dare God want to shower wrath on people? I thought he was a God of love. I thought he was a God of grace. How dare he just instant executions Ananias and Sapphias for lying? I lie all the time. I don't understand. How dare he wipe out the Canaanites? Just mass slaughters them. I read a book. It's called Disturbing Divine Behavior. And it's, it's written by a Christian professor, but he's writing it to atheists, and he's showing, he's using very extreme terms to describe God as an instant executioner, as a mass slaughter. And he talks about the different passages. And so he shows like all these scriptures where God is just showing his wrath, showing his wrath, and it haunted me. Who is this God? Because I thought he was a God of love. I thought he was a God of grace. This is not justice, what he's doing here. How can that be justice? It was a, it was a cocoon that I was in when I was studying this. Um, 
a lot of the words so in the Bible, such as transform, come from the Hebrew and Greek word metamorphosis. We are always going into these cocoons. As we are growing with God, we are always going into these cocoons. So that way we can come out this beautiful butterfly that God wants us to be. But we're always going back into the cocoon in this lifetime because God always needs to work in us. And so I was in this cocoon going, what, how do I reconcile this idea that God is love and that he's God of grace? But at the same time, there's sure a lot of blood in these pages. What do I do? Francis Chan does a really good video. He, it's not even about that, but it's, a, it's his promo video to Erasing Hell. Have you guys seen that video? It's really good. Just YouTube it when you get home. And he talks about the idiocracy of us to think that we have a higher sense of justice than God. That me, as a piece of clay, can tell other pieces of clay about the potter. And it's kind of like that. I thought I had a higher sense of justice than God. But as I poured over these passages and as I got to stare, as I got to gaze upon the face of God, I realized that I had the same reaction that Isaiah did. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone. Oh, that's my sermon. I'm just gonna... No, I'm just messing. That would really suck. So what are we to do? Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it he had touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. We deserve God's wrath. Absolutely deserve it. We should be petrified of the justice of God coming down on us. We've seen what that justice looks like in the pages all across the Old Testament. But the most brutal act of divine vengeance ever recorded in scripture is actually not found in the Old Testament. But the New Testament, the most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen on the cross. If ever a person had room to complain of injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. That's something for me when I was getting to know Jesus and seeing this true love that Christ... I mean, we, we worship a God who is love because we know what love is because God is also a God of justice. He's also a God of holiness. He has to punish injustice. 
Even, even atheists cry out that injustice must be punished. For us to believe in a God who doesn't punish justice, we're not believing in the real God. And really, in fact, a God who doesn't punish injustice doesn't deserve our worship. When I look at the cross, I can't, I can't imagine the pain that Jesus felt. I can't imagine it. Because see, this is the beauty of God. Forever, for infinity, you know, infinity is, there's no end, there's no beginning, it's infinity. For infinity, the Father and Son had this beautiful relationship. They're in this beautiful, harmonious relationship, always. The Father and the Son are one. I had a youth pastor one time. I went there, and he was talking about, you know, he, had, he brought this little garden, garden gnome out, and he sat it on, he sat it on this table, and he's like, you know, I, I made this garden gnome. I love this garden gnome. This garden gnome's great. And, you know, he, he basically played out Genesis. And he's like, yeah, you know, but this garden gnome disobeyed me. He went into the part of the garden that I told him not to. Stupid garden gnome, you know. And uh, he's like, the only way I can atone for this garden gnome's sin is by taking an innocent life And having it die in place, of the garden gnome. Now he had just had a he had just he didn't give birth. His wife gave birth to a beautiful son, and he had this picture and he showed it up on the screen. He's like, I have to give my son for the garden gnome. Out of nowhere, he pulls out a bat. I don't know where it came from. Pulls out the bat, just swings and obliterates the garden gnome. We're all like, oh crap! <laughs> like we're gonna have to clean that up later. Like that sucks, you know. But it got the point across. God did a tremendous thing. The father and son were one. And on the cross, the lion of Judah turns his face. And Jesus is left alone. The father and son are separate. Because at that moment, Jesus takes on our sin. The sin, all of our sin is placed on Jesus. And because the Father is holy, he cannot be connected with sin. Now, if you read the Gospels, we see that Jesus is flogged. He's beat. He's humiliated. He's spat on. But I think something that's really beautiful and really horrifying at the same time is that the only time in Scripture that Jesus is ever recorded of yelling and screaming is not when he's being beaten, is not when he's being flogged. It is when the Father turns his face and he takes on the sin of the world. That amazes me. Now, he probably screamed. I'm not going to lie. That, you know, having those little hooks go into the back and ripping out your flesh, that probably hurts a lot. But the fact that Scripture only wants to mention 
that he screamed at the point where the father and son were separate shows us how intense this really is. We deserve God's wrath, but God has done something mind-blowing. Like the coal given to Isaiah, God has given us a precious gift. He has given us Jesus Christ. And it is through his blood, by his grace, through faith, that we are given the chance to not fear his wrath, but be welcome into this infinite embrace. To be invited to join the Trinity in a divine romance. We have been given Jesus. If you guys don't understand that, please come talk to me afterwards. We have been given a precious gift. We deserve God's wrath. You're going to hell unless you give yourself to Jesus. Unless you accept the invitation to this divine romance with the Trinity. When you give your life to Jesus, a new journey has begun. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Justification, regeneration, sanctification, new birth, new life, new mind, new heart, new purpose, new meaning, new love. That's the benefits of accepting Christ. What a glorious benefits. New life. New purpose, new mind, new heart. That we don't have to do good things to get to heaven, that we are saved. And now we are given the opportunity to change the world because the love of Christ is in us. And we want to spill out the love of Christ to others. I met a Jehovah Witness this summer and she couldn't get past the fact of justification, that you were saved by grace. Because she is taught that you must go knock door to door and annoy people at 9 o'clock in the morning and tell them that they need to join the church so that way they can move up in line and get to heaven quicker. And I asked her, I was like, is it more loving to help somebody because you know you'll get something out of it or is it more loving that you help somebody because you want to love them, that you get nothing in return but you want to pour out your love for them. She's like, oh, that's easy. It's, you know, it's the second one. You do something loving because you want to love them. I was like, exactly. That's what you're doing. You're doing the first option. I'm trying to tell you the second option, this option that Christ has saved you already. So that way you can go out in the world and you can change people in your lives. When we gaze upon the face of God and God opens our eyes, heart, and mind to fall in love with Jesus and live with Jesus, we can't help but say, here I am. Send me. I got to go to this leadership, leadership conference with um, Joel and Megan a couple weeks ago. It was, it was an awesome conference. Absolutely mind-blowing. And part of the conference, they read a passage from Jeremiah 19.20. 
And before you entered the conference, they gave you this piece of shattered pottery. And so they tell the story, you know, that God had called Jeremiah to go tell the Israelites that, hey, see this pot? This is what God's going to do to you. And he smashes the pot. I think it was Bill Hybels talks about God has given us tough callings. <laughs> Saying, here I am, send me. Oh, by the way, this is not going to be easy. It's actually going to be hard. There's a cost to discipleship. This isn't a free ride. I think we see that <laughs> throughout the martyrs and the apostles. I mean, Diedrich is one of my favorite. He understood the grace of God. And when all of these churches started joining Hitler, Diedrich was like, uh, uh no, I think Hitler's kind of crazy, guys. I don't know about this. He was the only one to stand up because he understood what it meant to follow Christ. We've been given this great opportunity to share Jesus. When I gave my life to Christ, Christ, I wasn't expecting this, but Christ moved in and shook my world upside down. In these last two years, I've never met so many people in my life. I've never been so on so many adventures, but I've never been challenged by the way Christ has challenged me. I've never suffered It wasn't until I met Jesus that I really experienced suffering, which is weird. You know, you hear a lot of times like, oh, like, when you accept Christ, you get a mansion, you get this viper, you know? I lost my job, <laughs> you know? Couldn't pay for Subway. To share the gospel about the king who is holy and must punish injustice and sin, and in doing so, give himself as the punishment so that through him, by his grace, we may have real relationships and real life with him. This is the gospel. That a king came down to us. He moved. I love what the message does. He moved into the neighborhood. He became flesh. And instead of obliterating us like he should have, he showed us grace, and he took that wrath upon himself so that way we could have new life with him, a new journey with him, a new purpose, a new everything. God is good. God is gracious. God is holy. King Jesus, you are good. You are awesome. You are amazing. Lord, thank you for humbling me and hopefully for humbling everyone else. To see how magnificent your holiness is, Lord, to see just how beautiful you truly are. Lord, thank you for this divine gift. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for everything. We pray this in your name. Amen.